You're listening to the sermon cast of First Presbyterian Church Spartanburg. To watch the full video of this worship service and to learn more about the ministries of our church, visit us online at fpcspartanburg.org. We hope you enjoy the message. If you were in church with us last week, you might remember the story that we read from Mark, the story of Jesus calling his very first disciples. This week, we turn to the story that immediately follows that one. Jesus has just gathered these men who will follow him on the path of discipleship that is ahead, and he turns to his very first public act of ministry. And this is what it looks like. Let us continue listening now for a word from God as we hear these verses from the first chapter of Mark, beginning with the 21st verse. Jesus and the disciples went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and he taught. Now they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying with a loud voice came out of him. They were all amazed, Mark tells us. And they kept on asking one another, what is this, a new teaching with authority? Jesus commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once... Jesus' fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon is titled, The Holy Comforter. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, Holy Comforter. Draw near to us in this space and in this time. Indeed, O God, send your spirit that it might both comfort and stir something within us. Send your spirit, O God, that through its work, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered together here in your sight would be pleasing and glorifying to you. For you and you alone are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, there it is. Jesus' first act of public ministry, an exorcism, the casting out of evil spirits, we're told. One of my favorite things to do is to uh, teach a class for visitors and new members. Old members are welcome too, but it tends to be visitors and new members. And I've done this for many years now. And one of my favorite questions to ask somewhere near the beginning of that class is to have participants just say a word that they associate with being Presbyterian. 
Right when they see friends in the grocery store and they say, you know, I'm hanging out with a kind of strange bunch down there at First Pres, and they say, what are those Presbyterians all about? What do they say? How would they describe it in one word? It's amazing the responses you get. Often you hear someone say grace. When I think about Presbyterians, I think about grace. We've talked and worshiped before about uh, our theological alphabet as Presbyterians. We have all the same terms and words that Christians across all traditions have, words like sin and salvation and, and redemption. But as Presbyterians, we tend to start our theological alphabet with grace. It's where things start and where things end for us. Other times people say, well, I think about the word mission. It's a great response, right? Because we start and end everything with grace, we believe that we are a people sent out into our community and into our world to share that grace with others through acts of service and mission. Sometimes someone will say connectional. It's what they think of when they think of the word Presbyterian. We love to do things as a group. You all are actually going to enact that in just a few minutes at our congregational meeting, right? We make decisions as a group, we share power, we share leadership. We believe that God is most present in community. So I've been asking this question for years now, right? I get all sorts of answers like those ones. You know what no one has ever said before? What do you think of when you think of Presbyterians? No one has ever said, I think of exorcisms. Right? Many of us up here in robes and some of you out there went to seminary and had incredible teachers, as we know Pastor Leon will be as well. And I have to tell you, over three years of seminary, I was never once subscribed to a class on exorcism. No one was ever assigning me a reading or a book about exorcism. I don't even think I ever used the word exorcism in three years of theological education. So you can imagine my surprise, my astonishment, my bewilderment, my anxiety that came with a phone call about a year out of seminary. I was sitting at my desk at the congregation I served and the phone rang and on the other end was a much older member of our congregation, a woman who I had interacted with some and I had interacted with her enough to know that she had been struggling for some time with both physical and emotional challenges. And she said to me on the other end of that line that day, she said, Alan, I need you to come at once. Okay, what for? I need you to perform an exorcism. This is a true story. I had no idea what to do. What do you do when no one has ever really used that term in a meaningful way with you and your particular tradition? So after a pregnant pause, I said, okay, I'll be right over. I did the only thing any of us know to do, especially pastors when we encounter these situations that we don't plan for and usually aren't trained for, you just go. So that's what I did. I went, got my car keys. I drove over to her house and we sat and she talked. 
She shared with me about how she had been tormented, was her word, for months now, tormented by these voices is what she described that kept her up day and night. That's why we hadn't seen her in church. She was so tired all the time, not resting, just feeling bad every hour of every day. She said, Alan, help me. At the end of our time, we held hands, right? After listening for an hour, after looking her in the eye for that time and just taking it all in, we held hands and we prayed. For a long time, we just prayed. It's interesting that Mark, of all the gospels, Mark is the only one that begins with the story of Jesus performing an exorcism. Each of the Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry a little differently. Matthew, Luke, and John all start in slightly different places. John is my personal favorite. Jesus calls the disciples, and the next thing they do is go to a wedding where the wine runs out, and Jesus' first act of public ministry is to keep the party going. I'm looking at the choir. These folks know how to have a good time. Right? He takes those six giant vats of water and turns it into the best tasting wine you've ever had. But Mark starts like this. Why does Mark start like this, I wonder? You know, it could be that Mark is trying to set the disciples' attention, our attention, on the scale and the scope of Jesus' healing power. As you keep reading Mark's gospel, there are many more stories of healing and miracles. And so perhaps Mark starts to tell us the story of Jesus in this way so that our attention is a little bit more focused. We're looking out for those stories to really get a glimpse at just how powerful this Jesus is. Or maybe Mark is doing something more along the lines of what J.D. was talking with the children about. Right? It shouldn't be lost on us that this whole story takes place where? In church, in a synagogue. Right? I mean, that's the place of authority. Maybe Mark is really trying to unpack for us the nature of Jesus' authority. Right? The scribes and the priests, they're the ones with the diplomas. They're the ones that people go to for answers, for direction. They have authority. But then here comes Jesus, and twice in these verses... People are amazed. They're astonished, Mark tells us. Because what? Jesus is teaching with authority. Their amazement and their astonishment, I think, is meant to be read as the fact that Jesus is apparently showing them a different kind of authority than they're used to. They may not be able to articulate why or how it's that way, but they just sense in his presence that this man is the embodiment of something that the world has never known before teaches with authority but maybe it's even simpler than that maybe Mark is beginning with this story of Jesus casting out evil spirits to simply make the point that with Jesus evil and all of its different forms Evil in this world ultimately will not prevail. 
Maybe Mark is just trying to make the point that in Jesus we have a God become flesh. A God who can take things as they are, but not leave them there. A God who will take things as they are and turn them into the way things should be. Think for a moment about the community that is hearing this story for the very first time, both the one that Mark is writing to. Remember, Mark is the first of the Gospels written. So Mark has written 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's the audience that is hearing and reading this story for the first time. But also think about the community of people that are just around Jesus in this actual event. These are poor people. These are powerless people. Right? We're in Galilee. Mark introduces the scene by saying Jesus went on to Capernaum. That's right there around the Sea of Galilee. Galilee, both less so now, but especially then, it was not a wealthy region. Right? These are fishermen. Right? The only money they make are the fish they catch. The size of their bank account is determined by the weight of their nets. These are poor people. But even more than that, they are living in a time and a place where they are occupied by Rome. This is something that often kind of goes over our heads, I think, when we read the Gospels. The whole time Jesus is alive and ministering is in this time of occupation. The Romans were the superpower of the day. And for the most part, they were happy to let people in their uh, regions all over basically do as they please as long as they did two things. Can you guess what those are? As someone, I think, said, as long as you pay your taxes... And as long as you don't threaten them, right? As long as you don't steal from them, as long as you don't instigate violence, as long as you don't go around and say crazy things, I don't know, like claim to be God, you're good. And along comes Jesus, casting out spirits, teaching with an authority that people had never quite seen before. Imagine how this story must have landed in their ears and upon their hearts. Surely they would hear this story and they would think to themselves, let me get this right. If Jesus can cast out evil spirits, then that must mean Jesus can also cast out danger. The danger we face in just our daily lives. Bumping up against these soldiers, these people with real power, the power to take our liberty away. If Jesus can cast out a spirit like this, then maybe Jesus can also overcome that. Maybe Jesus can also overcome the despair that just kind of sits there every day. If Jesus can cast out an evil spirit, then maybe Jesus can also overcome the pitfalls and the injustices that we have to endure in our daily existence. If Jesus can cast out an evil spirit, then maybe Jesus can also overcome all those other illnesses, all those other disabilities that we live with. Right? If Jesus can drive out an evil spirit, I imagine them thinking, then maybe that means that Jesus can also drive out the things that torment them day and night. Maybe those things don't have the final say either. 
Right? If Jesus can drive out these evil spirits, then maybe the way things are for us, they must be thinking, are not necessarily the way things have to be. For them, for us, for this world, for this community, for this church. See, I hear that community listening to this story or if they were there witnessing this event unfolding and thinking to themselves, this is much more than an exorcism, isn't it? This is life-saving, literally life-saving good news. When I was in seminary, I spent a semester working at a small Episcopal church in the Ormwood Park neighborhood of Atlanta. It's a mission congregation of the diocese there. It's called the Church of the Holy Comforter. As a side note, this is the only experience I've ever had with a Christian tradition other than Presbyterianism, for better or worse, that's all I've ever known. So they put me up there in front of people at noonday every day with that book of common worship, and I butchered that thing every which way you can. And they taught me a thing or two about grace because they were very gracious with me and all the mistakes I made trying to lead them in worship. But it's a remarkable church because 60% of the congregation of the Church of the Holy Comforter are adults who live with severe mental illness. So schizophrenia, multiple personality disorder, bipolar, you name it, right? That was this congregation. It was an incredible experience and as I read this story, it occurred to me that it's important for us not to dismiss, overlook, or discount the fact that the man described in these verses probably had a face a lot like the ones that I looked out on in the pews at the Church of the Holy Comforter. Right, we have the benefit of time and science and medical knowledge to apply some terminology to this this circumstance that the ancient writers of this story didn't necessarily have. It's important that we not overlook that because I suspect every person in this room knows what it is to struggle and to suffer with an illness like that, either directly or each and every one of us loves someone who loves someone who wrestles with that reality every day. I don't want to discount or dismiss that because that's a piece of this story. But I also don't want us to miss the fact that there are powers and voices in this world outside of those situations that are in need of rebuking. Amen? Right, there are powers and voices that each of us come face to face with every single day. Powers and voices that seek to demean and to disparage Powers and voices that seek to subjugate and control both us and others. You don't need me to write out a list. We know them. We know the big ones and we know the small ones that might control the corners of our own hearts. 
I think this story, this event, it speaks to those powers and those voices as well. And so I think it's also pointing to another reason that Mark might have picked this story to begin the story of Jesus in his gospel. Because I think he wants all of the disciples, the ones Jesus had just called and the ones sitting here today, I think Mark wanted us to know that when we come face to face with powers and voices like those, we are not helpless. Right? When the phone rings on your desk, or when the knock comes at the door, or when the plea for help reaches our ears, there is something we can do. We can go. We can get our car keys and get in the car and go. We can sit in that situation with that person or with those people and look them in the eyes and listen, and we can pray. We can go. Because what this story teaches us is that we do not go alone, right? The Holy Comforter goes with us. I wonder if Mark isn't trying to teach those disciples that they're going to face a lot of hard situations. They're going to bump up to a lot of evil. But guess what? The one who they follow goes in front of them to show them the way. There's an assurance for us in that as well that we can go, that we can be a voice that seeks to speak compassion and grace and community to those other voices that try and tell us the opposite. We can go because the Holy Comforter goes with us. I can see her face. That woman who I visited with that day all those years ago, she swore to me after that visit, until her dying day, that after we sat and listened and prayed, she never heard those voices again. Listen, I told the early services that I have an ego, but I don't have an ego that big. Right? I know that I don't have the authority or the power to accomplish something like that. I don't have the authority or the power to take things as they are and to turn them into the way that things should be. I don't have that power. You don't have that power. We don't have that power. But friends, we know the one who does, don't we? Yes, we know the one who does. Amen.